A warning for listeners, some of the, uh, the next story will be hard to hear, especially for First Nations people. This country is at various points of truth-telling about the uglier aspects of our past, and we need to keep hearing these stories because there was simply so much damn lying. One such case is the Forest River Massacre, of at least 20 Aboriginal people in the Kimberley, as recent as 1926. This month-long rampage by a police patrol with civilian add-ons so disturbed officials that there was a royal commission the next year which concluded that every member of the patrol was lying. A new book focuses on perhaps the biggest liar of them all, Bernard O'Leary, local landholder, who effectively led the patrol. Professor Kate Audy is the author, Kate, of course, lawyer, and also the chair of Victoria's Environmental Protection Authority. And she joins us from regional Victoria, where she lives, and she tells me the white butterflies have left her veggie garden. Kate, we should explain some of your connections to this story because it's hard to link with, well, Victoria and the EPA. You grew up in the Kimberley. I, I did some of my growing up on the Kimberley, Philip. I did my first three years of schooling at the Kimberley Research Station School and we came away from there and then spent uh, time in Darwin some time after that. But my most recent links to the Kimberley go to when I worked with um, the team for Pat Dodson's Underlying Issues Report in the uh, early 1990s and that took mm-hmm. us all over WA, engaged in conferencing way down to Kalgoorlie and, uh, of course, to Esperance and into Perth. So I've got a link that uh, takes me to those places. Your work with uh, Pat Dodson was with the Royal Commission into Deaths in Custody. Yeah, that's right. And after that, of course, I was over in Kalgoorlie in the Western Desert where I was a magistrate for some four years or so. As a uni student, you did some work on the Forest Creek Massacre in your Bachelor of Arts degree. I did indeed, and it was the usual sort of Bachelor of Arts degree of a person who's not concentrating, Philip. So I um, I had an early look at this Royal Commission, and that was associated with my old dad saying to me when I was looking around for a thesis, why don't you do something on the Forest River Massacre? And his interest arose from when we were, in fact, in the Kimberley as kids and when my parents were there, because, of course, one of the perpetrators was a veterinary surgeon who worked for CSIR, as it then was. So my father's a veterinary surgeon and that was in fact one of those links. You called your book O'Leary of the Underworld. We'll meet O'Leary in a moment for our sins and his but what is the underworld? Yeah now the underworld is a place and it's a headspace. It first came to me through the work of Cathy Clement who's a historian of some note in WA, did some early work with the East Kimberley Impact Um, assessments and she referred to the underworld as a bunch of blokes in a particular part of the lower east Kimberley out on the border of the Northern Territory and just to the east of a station called Bedford Downs. So the underworld is a place where there's been long history of conflict and in fact I went back and had a look at some of the massacre narratives out of that 
part of the world thinking about this discussion we'd have. And there's the Lineker Gorge, there's the Horseshoe Creek, there's Mistake Creek, which got our former Governor-General Bill Dean in some issues. There's the Lightman Creek, there's Sturt Creek, there's Bedford Downs, there's Walpony, there's Spring Creek, there's Panton River, there's Violet Valley. And all of those are stories that Aboriginal people told amongst themselves and to people who would listen about what had occurred in their part of the world. But it definitely referred to the place and it referred to the people who actually occupied country down there. So that was people like O'Leary, for instance, who's definitely linked to that descriptor of the the underworld, uh, Scotty Sadler, Jack Carey, who was notoriously quite um, quite mad, I think, and very violent, and Scotty Salmon. Scotty Salmon came back from World War One, as did O'Leary, and Salmon's on record as saying, "Look, we came back from a place where we'd been taught to kill. We were stronger than Aboriginal people, and in conflict, uh, we just engaged in what we'd been taught." Scotty Sadler is a fascinating character in. Um, in many respects as well. He was uh, regarded as the potential murderer of his own um, squatting partner, Bowers, and there was an investigation into that where a number of Aboriginal people were about to be held responsible for it, but that was all jettisoned when a proper investigation was done. And Scotty Sadler is in the Aboriginal Argot as a man who had an Aboriginal wife and she told one of the investigators in the Bower matter that she'd had three children to Scotty Sadler and he'd made her kill them all. So these are blokes who are on the fringe and they're down there in the bottom part of the Kimberley at the end of the Canning stock route and there's also stories about people going into the end of the Canning stock route and there being uh, murder and mayhem down there visited on Aboriginal people. And the Kate, we'll, Creek... we'll circle back to the, mm. this mm. detail shortly but I think it's time for you to introduce us to O'Leary who was part of earlier police patrols before Forest Creek. He, he was. He was actually involved in a patrol which was um, seeking out the people who had killed a bloke called Harry Anir, who's described, and I use the descriptor, as a half-caste. And Harry Anir was speared by Aboriginal men because he kidnapped Aboriginal women. And Harry Anir was an associate of O'Leary's. When Anir's body was found, O'Leary and others were part of a patrol that went out and visited violence on Aboriginal people. It was said that there were about 20 camps that were raided in that particular patrol and Aboriginal people talk about that time as a time when the country stunk all around, which uh, you can use your imagination as to what that meant. And what's interesting about that Anir patrol is that when the 1927 Royal Commission was held about the 1926 Forest River Massacre, that patrol was mentioned in passing but it was never really properly explored and of course it had been said to have been investigated but uh, Gribble and others said it never was. Would you take us through what happened at uh, at Forest River uh, in May 1926? Yeah. In May 1926, Hay was alone on his station. He went down to a billabong and um, there was said to be a dead uh, beast there and uh, he ran his horse into Lumbia, who was at a billabong with two women, and he attacked Lumbia with both his stock whip and his pistol. And later, of course, it was clear that Lumbia had had a glancing head wound, which was still obvious when he was ultimately arrested. And uh, Lumbia got the better of him with uh, a spear and Hay was uh, Hay was killed by Lumbia. And then reinforcements were sent for from Wyndham. So that's when the patrol started to come together. Now, 
A couple of uh, police constables are set out initially, but they're joined by a posse, aren't they? They are indeed, and what happens is two special constables were sworn in in Wyndham. One of them is O'Leary and the other is Jolly, who was a wharf labourer who'd had a fight with his wharf manager and was looking for work. And, of course, Regan was the constable who was still in Wyndham and he came out from Wyndham. And they were joined by Daniel Manane, who was the veterinary scientist who volunteered twice to go on the patrol. And so out of Wyndham in early June, the party left, which is called the Reinforcements, and that was four, which was about to join Constable St Jack and Overhoy and trackers out at the uh, Nulla Nulla station. There were Aboriginal trackers involved. There were, there were indeed. And when the Royal Commission was first set up, it's pretty clear to those of us who've studied this that there was an early, early assumption that it would be the trackers that might be held responsible for what had occurred out in the um, around the Nulla Nulla station. And it became very clear that it wasn't the trackers during the course of the Royal Commission. But uh, certainly people started with that assumption, which uh, seemed to have happened quite often in some of these matters. One of your challenges was to sort out the lies from the truth, but suffice to say that over the next month, four different small groups of Aboriginal men and women were killed and incinerated at different locations by the patrol. At least 20 people dead. Yeah, that's right, Philip. And it was in two sections, this patrol, so let's deal with the first the first deaths. There were four men who were captured and chained and taken to a creek at a place called Go to Go to Mary. And um, there they were shot and incinerated. And that was described when it was later visited by Gribble and, of course, others, including Police Inspector Douglas, as an improvised oven. And from that particular place, Go to Go to Mary, the um, route went on to a place called Moeri, where three women were chained around a tree, one of them being old and blind and they were shot and their bodies were incinerated. And around about that particular part of the patrol area, nine people were brought in, mostly I think um, captured by the trackers during that time, but it's hard to tell, and they were taken to a ravine which was west of Moeri. And when Police Inspector Douglas was taken around this part of the patrol by Suleiman, who was one of the trackers with the police patrol, he was in no doubt that there were four men killed at Go to Go to Mary, three women killed at Moeri, and nine killed past Moeri in the ravine. So that's the first part of the of the patrol. They then broke, and Manane said he wanted to go back to uh, to uh, Wyndham and ultimately to Melbourne for work. They broke the party up and. At that stage, uh, Manane went back into Wyndham and a message came out from Wyndham to disband the special constables. That's O'Leary and Jolly. And so Sergeant Buckland came out from Wyndham. And at that stage, Constable Regan and Constable St Jack were the only police who went north to a place called Dala. And at Dala... The Royal Commissioner actually visited that site. It was the only one of the sites he visited. But he was confident that four people had been executed there and their bodies burnt as well. And that was two men 
and to women. The really sorry part of that part of the story, and all of this is ghastly, the really sorry part of that is that two Aboriginal men came out from the mission or were sent out from the mission by Gribble to go with that part of the patrol, and the, their names were Herbert and Aldoa. Aldoa is the one who carried into the police camp one of those four, the old man called Gumbel, because he was just too sick to walk. So there's just no question that of the evidence they were able to give about the four being brought into the Dala camp, it just reeks of, um, of accuracy in the manner in which it's, uh, it was put by those two men. At one point, O'Leary threatened the, the missionary Gribble that he'd put a bullet in him if he came after him on nigger business. He did indeed. He did that when they were all back in Wyndham on the 7th of July, which was the end of the end of the patrol. O'Leary was back in town and Gribble was there as well. And Gribble um, reported that that had been said to him. That wasn't the only time that O'Leary threatened Gribble. He also threatened Gribble when Gribble was giving his evidence in the 1927 Royal Commission in Wyndham in an adjournment. So Gribble hadn't quite finished his evidence and there was a break in the, um, in the proceedings. And at that stage, O'Leary said to Gribble, why don't, why don't you come out to my place and if you do, your toes will turn up, which uh, is obviously a bit of a reference, I would have thought, to the fact that everybody knew it as the underworld and everybody had a bit of an idea about what that might have meant. There was two devastating sentences in your introduction to the book. Quote, the tracks of some Aboriginal women led to a charred tree stump. The tracks did not lead away. Could you give us a brief general sense of the lying before the Royal Commission which occurred the following year and, well, the lying covered the full gamut, didn't it? It did, it co and it covered the co what I would call the combatants and the people who weren't. So, look, just if you have a list, Regan, and, and these were matters that the Commissioner put in his findings, which uh, is pretty interesting. We've all been present in courts where somebody lies. You don't expect everybody to do it. Regan, the Commissioner said, was proved to have lied twice, and he admitted to a third lie. St Jack actually lied to Police Inspector Douglas as the investigation began, and Douglas reported that and Overhoy also lied to Douglas as the investigation began. That led to Douglas saying that he didn't trust the police in Wyndham and he wanted other police to come up from Perth and he got Manning delivered to him. Uh, O'Leary and others lied about a number of things about the party being split up and, of course, that meant that it would be difficult to sheet home responsibility to the whole block because who was it to blame for particular things? Um, O'Leary and others lied about there being no small groups of Aboriginal people captured or taken into camp. They all lied about there being one big group of people taken into the first camp, so around about the time that they were um, killing people at Goda Goda Mary, Moeri and the Ravine. They all lied about there being one big group and no small groups. They all lied about how far they travelled, making it appear that there were long distances travelled instead of within the 16-mile radius of the mission, which is the map that the uh, surveyors put together for the commissioner. Uh, it, it's pretty clear that uh, when challenged with these lies, O'Leary, for instance, said that he didn't lie but that Solomon did and that Aboriginal people lied all the time. So it was also a case of flipping that. But the Commissioner very clearly said O'Leary obviously lied, Regan lied, St Jack lied and Murnane lied and he had no, no trouble in um, adding Murnane to the list of people who lied to him. Talking to Kate Orty 
O'Leary could be renamed O'Leary because he just lied about everything, including his own name. He did indeed, Philip, and this is one of the reasons why when I got um, back to this piece of piece of work, I, I, I just was struck by him. I just thought, who was this bloke? He lied about who he was because he was actually a person called Francis Bernard Coffey. He lied to the commissioner about um, his background, saying that he'd mostly worked with stockwork because that wasn't his background. He had a background in mining and he had a background from the south rather than just the Northern Territory and Queensland, as he put it. And there's a lot of, lot of reasons why I think nobody really wanted to know who O'Leary was and there was a bit of a tentative and um, unhelpful investigation which happened far too late in the Royal Commission proceedings. But he lied about who he was because I think it would have been a bit embarrassing to uh, suggest who he actually was, particularly as the barrister who represented them wanted to portray O'Leary as a bumbling simpleton, a backwoodsman who couldn't get a day right because O'Leary was the one who claimed to have carved a date on a tree just before go to go to Mary. And that that date, if it was right, meant they had a lot of time to uh, act as they did in that part of the patrol, but they wanted to compress and contract the dates and so the 8th of June became a date that couldn't possibly be right. O'Leary claimed to carve it and then it was uh, said that he was a fool and got it wrong. The 8th of June was the right day and we know it was the right day in my view because it was actually Overhoy's birthday and I don't think Overhoy was going to get his birthday wrong if someone was carving it on a tree as they were killing all these people and burning their bodies. But going to O'Leary, when you have a look at who he actually was, it's a fascinating story in its own right. Well, tell course- us a bit about it. I find his mother, <laughs> uh, Kate Coffey, particularly intriguing. Yeah, look, she's fascinating. She's a woman who's obviously extraordinarily strong. She's a card sharp. She's married to um, Coffee in uh, the Bendigo area and he is a copper. So O'Leary's father is a copper. O'Leary's grandfather was an armed robber who was sent to Tasmania in the 1850s. But Kate Coffey in Bendigo when her husband died and she had five children to raise, uh, took on managing pubs. She managed a pub in Bendigo. There was a murderer of a Chinese man. She was involved in some perjury that meant uh, the whites who killed that Chinese man got off. It was very clear that the Crown Prosecutor thought there'd been a conspiracy of silence and a conspiracy of lies in relation to that matter. She then uh, left and went off to Kalgoorlie where she hooked up with um, Giannini and others in the hidden secret mine where there was a whole lot of um, nefarious activities around shares and about um, people who were bankrupt um, and people who shouldn't have been managing mines. And she was a person who, in my view, was extraordinarily strong-willed. In Kalgoorlie, she had O'Leary living with her, so her son was there with her. And as a 19-year-old, he's in the courts in Kalgoorlie, charged with what's uh, known as vagrancy, but it really was living off the earnings of prostitutes. After the uh, Forest River Massacre, O'Leary moves to the Northern Territory to Ten Creek. It just happens to be around when the Coniston Massacre, the most recent in our bloody history, took place in 1928, two years after Forest River. 
Yeah, it's difficult to tell whether he was actually there for the 1928 massacre when, when that occurred, but he certainly went to Tennant Creek. He was there and he had a small holding at the Granites, which was an unsuccessful um, gold mining enterprise. He then somehow or other got Mount Samuel mined for literally nothing, which immediately showed a whole lot of gold but hadn't previously. You might want to speculate <laughs> on O'Leary's, <laughs> O'Leary's knowledge of salting mines because his uncle knew all about it and his, so did his mother. And, um, of course, he was there and he was associated with Constable Murray and I would have thought that they're probably pretty good pals because when Murray gave a picture of a patrol that he said he conducted to Ernestine Hill for an article she published about Murray where she, under the headline, Scourge of the Miles, thinking that Murray was a pretty good bloke, um, the picture that's used is one of the Anir patrol and I just rather suspect that that uh, picture could not have found its way to Murray unless uh, unless O'Leary shared it with him. So you've got some nasty, um, some nasty associations. And now, while the royal, in, yep. the royal commission, of course, <laughs> makes its damning findings. Here's a Dorothy Dixon, because I suspect the, the answer isn't too pleasant. Then what? Uh, well, two of the, the two police were charged. So St Jack and Regan were charged with the murder of one Aboriginal man, one man whose name was given as Boondung, and a number of the Boondungs were killed in this um, patrol. And they were taken to Perth for the committal hearing. At the committal hearing, Gribble gave evidence and was savaged and undermined. Herbert and Aldoa both gave evidence and they gave very cogent and compelling evidence as far as the Crown Prosecutor was concerned. But other trackers who were part of the police party were in fact brought to Perth and they somersaulted the statements that they'd made in the past and lied about what occurred in respect of the Dala event. So this was just the one single event north of the forest driven mission itself. And both uh, uh, Regan and St Jack were discharged at committal to the applause of those who had come along to ensure that occurred. Now, here's an irony. Lumbia, the bloke who sparked it all by spearing uh, pastoralist hay, uh, mm-hmm. survived all this, but was charged with murder. He he survived. He survived all of that. He was sent down to um, to Rotnest, and in fact, his first life sentence for, or his first death sentence for, for killing Hay was um, he was reprieved or prorogued and ultimately served ten years. He then came back up to the Kimberley, and in the Kimberley, he came back to the Forest River Mission. He discharged a spear and killed his wife, Walma Jerry uh, King River, and. Then he was charged with manslaughter. He wasn't actually ever charged with murder, but he went before one of the peculiar Western Australian courts of native affairs and they found him guilty of murder, which they had no power to do. And therefore, Lumbia was pardoned because that really was the only thing that the executive could do. And out of that came a file where what you find as you read the file is a very marked path um, amongst the bureaucrats, which was that, Lumbia's first conviction for the murder of Hay was um, a travesty of justice and, in fact, he should have been allowed a self-defence defence and wasn't. And this comes through in the file about the later matter to do with um, the death of his wife. That trial, which relates to the death of his wife, as I say, went before a court of native affairs and he was tried by a doctor and a, um, a publican. That was his bench. He got no jury and there was not to be any appeals and his uh, representative in that trial was the local hospital orderly. So you can imagine nobody really knew much about what they were doing. What do you want to achieve with the book, Kate? 
Oh, look, I wanted to be part of what I think we need to do as a civilised country. I wanted to be part of truth-telling. And I'm really acutely aware, Philip, that in writing this, I've written a book about a lot of people's you know, ongoing pain and intergenerational trauma. But I wanted to be part of what I see as the ceaseless struggle to tell the truth about our country. And it started when we got off the first boats. It hasn't stopped and we need to make sure that we uh, we remedy that. Kate, thank you very much. Kate Alty's book, O'Leary of the Underworld, the untold story of the Forest River Massacre, published by La Trobe University Press and Black Ink and has just been awarded a koala stamp. Thanks, Kate. Thank you, Philip. Thanks for taking an interest and here's hoping we get a yes vote, a treaty and some truth-telling. Good on you, mate. Let's certainly hope that. And your koala (laughs) stamp is in the mail. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.